I think that was the single hardest part about having cystic fibrosis is that you set goals. And as she writes, then you have to have replacement goals and then your replacement goals don't get met. And you have to have new goals to replace those replacement goals. But my mantra was always no pity party. And her mantra was live happy. And so we just tried every day to find the joy in every day, no matter what. That was Diane Shader-Smith. This is Marnie Salop with co-host Lori Mazur. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hi, and welcome to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning in. This is a super special episode, as I am joined today by my favorite co-host and life partner, Lori Mazur. You may have heard Lori on my first episode talking about triathlon or on a recent episode where we interviewed author of Meltdown, Chris Clearfield. Lori is an avid reader and every now and then she reads something so compelling and moving. I think we need to interview that author, but then I think she needs to interview that author. So 90% of the time they are fueled by sports, fitness, and wellness which is right on topic with Marnie on the Move. Today, you are going to be moved. Get ready for an inspiring, empowering, moving story about courage, living life in the face of adversity and life-threatening disease from a young woman who turned to writing, sports, athleticism, and doing what she loved, as she says, living happy, from the young age of three. Mallory Smith was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. She began journaling at the age of 15, and thanks to today's guest, her mother, communication specialist, crisis management expert, and writer, Diane Shader-Smith. We have her beautiful memoir and story. This is one of the most incredible and inspiring books that I have ever read. I am beyond thankful to Lori for introducing me to this amazing book, Salt in My Soul, An Unfinished Life, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Diane, I would love for you to share with my listeners the story of where the book began and what this memoir is about. So Mallory started actually writing when she was nine. What happened was that she came home one day after being a very compliant patient for all the years from the time she was three until she was nine, and she sort of got a bee in her bonnet and came home at nine and said, I'm not going to do treatment anymore. I'm sick of it. I want to be like my other friends. And normally, if she ever expressed reluctance to do treatment with a little cajoling or a little bribing, she was back on it. But on this particular day, she said she was never going to do it again, and she was really sick of it. And so I called Mark, my husband and her father, and we sat down with Mallory, and he said to her, Mallory, we're not asking you to do treatment because we're trying to punish you. We're asking you to treatment because we don't want you to die. And Mallory stormed out of the room, slammed the door, and didn't speak to us for three days because it was sort of the first time she understood that cystic fibrosis could be fatal. But after three days, she came out, 
And she started keeping a diary. And at that point, it was in spiral-bound notebooks, and it was very unsophisticated. And it was easy to break into, so I used to read it. And it was really very young, childlike writings. But when she turned 15, she took up a computer, and at that point, she password-protected the journal, so there was no more snooping. And she wrote from the time she was 15 until her death at 25. What went through your mind when you and your family learned that Mallory had cystic fibrosis? It was devastating, and I remember crying my way through the initial meeting with the doctor and asking him how he took care of sick children and hysterical parents, because I imagined that every patient that was diagnosed had a mom or a dad who was sobbing hysterically. And he basically said that we had reason to be hopeful because kids used to live to be five, and over the last 20 years, strides had been made with medications and treatments, and so now kids were living to be 25 This was back in 1995, and he expected the trajectory to get longer. And so he did tell me that first day that I would dance at Mallory's wedding, and that really caused me to be hopeful. And for many young people with CF, they do live to be in their 30s now. I think when I read the book, it was a period of time when I wasn't feeling great. And so reading about somebody who got through days of not feeling great, I really connected with and and I was reminded of my childhood, which people who know me now don't, I don't talk about it. But I had very serious asthma. And as I was reading about the treatments and the rituals that you need to go through when you're, you have a chronic illness as a child. Um, And then all of the things that you end up doing, some of which you don't know if you're doing because they're therapy or if because you would have just done that if you weren't sick. So for her, the surfing, for me, it was dancing, swimming. I remember, I think my parents forced me to play the clarinet, which I was terrible at, but I loved to sing. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. She was an amazing athlete. She loved to do things outdoors. She loved the environment. Can you talk about her childhood? Mallory did not start out interested in sports or the environment. She was a girly girl who used to go to sleep in her party dresses and her patent leather shoes. But when we understood that exercise was really helpful, we threw away all the party clothes and I put her in t-ball and in soccer and in basketball and just pushed the sports from that point on. I was an athlete and I cared deeply about wellness. And I thought, oh, how funny that I have this girly girl when I was always a tomboy. But in fact... I morphed Mallory into the image of what I thought she should be, and she grew into be an amazing athlete, a passionate environmentalist who wanted to be outdoors, saving the world. Unfortunately, as time went on, she wasn't allowed to do that, so she wrote the book, The Gottlieb Native Garden, A California Love Story, which is about one particular garden that teaches people that native plants can save the world because it restores the ecosystem and the balance. And it was working on that book with an environmentalist named Susan Gottlieb that made her understand that she could have a very strong impact in environmental education. So she started wanting to work in the field and be in third world countries and go to sewage plants and dig for plastic bottle caps to get it out so that it wouldn't get into our sewage system. But over time, she turned her passion into writing. Did she have a podcast? I saw in some of the notes that she was doing a green, what was it called? What was our podcast? Green Grid Radio. That was a Stanford radio show called Green Grid Radio. And Mallory produced some amazing episodes on the fair trade coffee industry and different environmental topics, eco eating. And then in addition to that, she 
did her senior thesis comparing the degradation of her lungs by the colonization of a superbug to the degradation of native Hawaii by the colonization of foreigners. And that was her senior thesis. And it, she turned it into a 40 minute podcast. It aired on public radio one time in San Francisco, but it is available if you ever want to play it. And yeah. It's fantastic. That's amazing. What's it called again? It's called Biome. Biome. That was the name of the episode or that's the name of the that's, radio show? It was just a 40 minute senior thesis. Okay. Called Biome. The Green Grid Radio was the radio okay. station at Stanford that had different episodes. I tried to look it up. I was like, oh, she's really into food and sustainability yes, yes. and health and wellness. I think w- there's a lot of questions that people with chronic illness ask about what ifs. You know, what if I had been born and what you'd consider a normal kid? Did Mallory ever ask those questions? Of she herself. didn't. Yeah. She didn't, and I didn't to yeah. her. But I've often thought she accomplished so much with so many huge health problems that I often think what she could have done if she didn't have them. But by that same token, I think when you are raised with a chronic illness, you have this understanding that life is short and you want to make the most of every minute, and you don't sweat the small stuff. And so I do think having a chronic illness shaped her into the most extraordinary young woman that who knows if she didn't have those special needs, whether she would have evolved that way. I see that myself in that when you do feel good, you want to get it all in, right? And I got that sense when I read Mallory's book that on the days when she was feeling good, it was like she wanted to soak up the world. And so can you talk about some of those times? Well, whenever she was feeling good, she wanted to do something outside and physical. Sometimes it was surfing. Sometimes it was hiking. She always wanted to be with her friends. She always wanted to learn and read a lot. And she wanted to explore foods and cooking and cuisine. And so there was never a day that she didn't feel good that she wasn't doing any number of things. She never had a day where she woke up and felt good and just got lazy. If she ever was in that sort of state that somebody might call lazy, it was because she didn't feel well and she physically couldn't pull herself up. Yeah, I remember reading that she never missed an activity. That was her main priority was just getting to be active on any given day. She would get really mad at me because I wouldn't wake her up for school sometimes if she had a volleyball tournament or a water polo match because I didn't think it was healthy for her to get up early, do her treatment, go to school, come home, do her treatment, go to sports, come home, do her homework. And so for me, the priority was always sports. And I would get in big trouble because I would go in after she went to sleep and turn off her alarm. So what's your athletic background? Because it sounds like that's where she, where you were saying before that you are very athletic. Well, I played sports in high school. And then my dad, when I was in high school, went in for a routine heart checkup. And they said, if you don't have five bypasses, In 24 hours, you'll be dead in a week from clogged arteries. And my dad, every single day of my life, he always walked an hour every single day until he got to be in his late 80s when he couldn't walk and he had bad hips. And then he started riding a stationary bike for an hour a day. And so I sort of grew up with that culture of you do something every day for your health. And I taught that to Mallory. Amazing. And what do you like to do? I like to walk and I like to swim and I like to lift weights, although I have an arm problem. I can't do that right now. When I was younger and I had more free time, I like to play volleyball. I like to play softball. I like to bike ride. I, I like to do a lot of things. But right now, with the schedule that I'm keeping, I like to every day, like I got up today at 4.30 and went to the gym for an hour and uh, just try to follow the tradition that my dad followed and that 
Mallory did as well. There was never a day that I wasn't saying to her, okay, come on, even if you don't feel well, just sit on the stationary bike for 10 minutes. And when she was in the hospital, I used to ask them to bring in a stationary bike or I would sneak her out for walks. And she writes, I don't know if you remember the part in the book where she said the doctor finally gave me permission to go back to uh, getting her to walk because she saw me as the drill sergeant. So I think one of the things that was so inspiring for me was that she, no matter where she was in her health journey, she always had big goals. She had big aspirations, and yet she had then limitations. And that's something I think everybody deals with. So can you talk a little bit about the way that she managed expectations for herself and adjusted her ambitions to what she could actually accomplish at the time? I think that was the single hardest part about having cystic fibrosis is that you set goals. And as she writes, then you have to have replacement goals and then your replacement goals don't get met and you have to have new goals to replace those replacement goals. But my mantra was always no pity party and her mantra was live happy. And so we just tried every day to find the joy in every day, no matter what. So if she was ambitious and energetic, we would do something big. And if she was not well, then we would try to make it small. So even if it was making a really good cup of coffee or going out for her favorite cup of coffee, it didn't matter. I don't know if you remember in the book, the part about Millie's ice cream when the tow truck driver who was so terrible. Well, at that point, when she was tethered to oxygen and on around the clock IVs, Sometimes the joy was getting out after throwing up all day and having 102.5 fever, finally at 7 o'clock at night, mustering up the energy to go get an ice cream. That might have been the joy at that point, whereas, you know, 10 years earlier, it would have been going with her girlfriends to the beach and hanging out and going out to dinner and doing all sorts of fun things. And speaking of beaches, she was a surfer, right? And you were saying earlier that surfing really helped her the salt from the ocean really helped her with her lungs, right? Yes. And actually, it's interesting. I think they've really discovered that surfing is good for so many things. In Mallory's case, the surfing was doubly good because it had the combination of the salt from the water and the air, which thins out the mucus. And then the pounding of the waves when you're standing on the board helps dislodge it. Interesting. But there is also a lot of data now to say that people who spend time in the ocean at the beach psychologically do much better. Spending time in nature has been well documented, but specifically spending time at the beach and in the ocean is really good for your health. I believe that. I feel it every time I go. Why are you living here in New York? There, there are some beaches. Are we have great beaches We're in New 30 York. minutes from the beach. And oh. we can swim in the ocean. Yeah. It's very cold in California. We go to Brighton Beach. You know, Neil Simon, Brighton yes. Beach Memoirs? Yeah, it's 30 minute drive. Oh, when I come back, we have to go there. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Absolutely. And you can get in the water and swim. I mean, it's not. Yeah. It's, really? Yeah, yes. it's flat. There's minimal current. You could swim for miles, actually. Wow. And there's a I like swim to club swim. in New York called SIBO. They, there's all these people in, up into, I don't know, some of them are like 90. And they all go out in, they go in a group and they literally start at the beach at 8 a.m. Uh, there's lifeguards come on at 10 and they swim for hours. All day they talk about the wind, the current, the water temperature, the distance. It's like a whole click thing. Wow. And they do not wear wetsuits. So if you wear a wetsuit, you can't be in their club. <laughs> That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. yeah, they're hardcore. Yeah. So we love we like hardcore people. I think that was one of the things that attracted us to Mallory, which I'm kind of getting the sense is a combination of her own zest for life and your no pity party, which um, <laughs> I think is a really good motto to have as well. So as I was listening to the book, because I listened to the book on Audible, and 
one of the things I kept thinking was Mallory was so inspiring. I think, you know, if you can exercise, then you should because there's people like Mallory who really probably can't and they are. I kind of feel like any struggle that anyone would have who's just able to do all these things should just stop talking and get outside and work out and train and do what they're supposed to do because it is an opportunity and a gift to be able to do that. Well, okay, so let me add something. In her journal, there's a piece that I could actually pull up if you wanted. Sure. I'm sure, although it would take me a while to find it. But she basically writes about the fact, and I didn't include this in the book because it's sort of critical of Mm -hmm. her friends, but, and I didn't want to do that. But the gist of it was it made her so angry when she would go to swim practice and not be allowed to swim because she was tethered to IVs and her friends would either not want to get in the water, one, because they had their period, which she said was ridiculous, or two, they didn't want to mess up their hair. And she was enraged because all she wanted to do was get into the pool. And it was very hard for her to watch her friends take those things for granted that she so desperately wanted. And she writes very eloquently about that. I think last year, was it last year or two years ago, Marnie and I went down to Miami to do, Marnie did the half marathon and I did my first marathon. Wow. And No wonder you don't feel well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's it. <laughs> that's, that, Actually, was, that was I, the beginning of the end. I wanted to ask you, I don't know if we're allowed yeah, to talk yeah, about yeah. what's your health condition, why you weren't yeah. well. So yeah, so I, I had severe asthma and it was allergic asthma. And I was allergic to everything. I was allergic to dust. I was allergic to mold. I was allergic to animals. And I was allergic to the children whatever was on their clothes and their skin. So everybody had animals. So I remember in second grade, there were like only two kids in the class that I could sit next to. I could only go to school every other day. And I was allergic to the gym. They went in and did mold cultures. And, you know, I was... That is so interesting. Yeah. So, but this was normal. This was my normal. And my mom was like, I had a wing mom, right? And my mom does not let anything face her. Like, Is she still alive? She is still alive and she is awesome. She's still and a wing mom. She's still a wing mom. How old is she? She's 75. Oh, she's young. Um, she's young. She has her own health conditions. I think with with asthma, it's like everybody in the family has something, but it manifests differently with different people. So nobody else in my family had asthma, but my mom had skin issues. My dad had seasonal allergies. Yeah, so I was the one that everybody knew as a, as the sick kid. In yeah. fact, we just went to a, a friend's party, people that I hadn't seen in many, many years. And when I post things on Facebook, part of the reason I do it is because all of these people that I knew back then are like, oh, my God, like we never thought Lori would be doing those things. Wow, that's amazing. I couldn't amazing. even run a mile. And now so, you ran a marathon. And I ran a marathon. And look, I'm I'm the lucky one, right? So my disease progressed so that you know, immunizations worked, medications got better. Right. But I, I had relationships with doctors like you had with Mallory, yeah. like Dr. Cassidy, he was our family friend, yeah. you know, we knew him better. I, I think I probably spent more time with him than I did with, with some of the people on our block. Well, that's Mallory writes about the ad hoc families that are and communities that are started through the hospitalizations. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. So I, that's a nice thing to have. Well, that's why she writes about the whole yeah. thing about Stanford as a second home. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully for me, I got better as I got older. And then I, you know, had the opportunity to live this second life. And, you know, over the years, you know, now people don't even know that that was what I grew up with. But I do, I think, appreciate 
And I think that goes back to the question of the what if. There's a love-hate relationship that I have with chronic illness. You know, you hate the times when you're sick, but in many ways I love the person that it made me become. Right. And so I, I dive into challenges because I don't have a problem with them. And I kind of thrive in that environment, yeah. right? I don't know if that's all that healthy, but that's, you know, that's the way that's the way it manifested itself for me. So for me, why do I, I'm a terrible athlete. I mean, I don't run fast. I'm in the bottom third. I'm a high achiever. I'm not used to doing things I'm bad at, but I do it because I can. Yeah. And well, because that's other a good people reason to do can't, it. Right. Yeah. Marnie is a great athlete. I'm not a great athlete, but I have a <laughs> podcast I've been recording that takes up that 10 hours a week I was supposed to be training. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, I'm pretty dedicated and I have a constant sort of ticker tape in my mind when I start to say things like, I don't want to go to the pool or I don't feel like running. I start beating myself up in a good way. I do. I really do. I'm like, this is really ridiculous. There's no excuse why I can't go outside and go for a run. Every day I channel Mallory. And if there's ever anything I don't want to do anything, I say, Mallory would have done it and she would have had a smile on her face. And so I don't complain much and I don't not do things. I do everything that I need to do and everything I want to do because I know life is short. You learn that when you live with chronic illness, not only from your own child, but from spending so much time in the hospital and meeting people whose lives have been so adversely affected by catastrophic things that come up. Yeah. As a matter of fact, today when I went to do the talk, the man who brought me to the law firm said that his wife who was supposed to come didn't come because her friend's 28-year-old daughter was just hit by a bike and killed here in Manhattan. And Just today? I think it happened a week ago. But she was going to help the mom. I mean, was it in Chelsea? I don't know where it was. It's so That's so crazy. But it was but so... But my it's bike. so... You ride your bike in the city? On the West Side Highway, not in the on the streets. But Can it I is... tell you not to do that? Yeah, no. Can I you tell can. you why I say that? Because, because cars don't see you and because, they can run you, you over. Because, you know, we call the, the people who provide the donor lungs, mm. we, we they tend to be, we, we call bicycles and motorcycles donor cycles because they're the ones that get in the accidents and it's usually young, healthy people who are exercising, who provide the lungs to people who need transplant. Old, sick, diseased people, their lungs are not usually viable. Right. This is true. Oh, I just ride on the West Side Highway to get out of the city. I'm afraid every time I ride my bike. In a good way. I think if you you have to you have, have a attention. healthy fear. But, <laughs> but see, I don't usually think it's the bike rider. I usually think it's the drivers. Yes. And I think that... Yeah. Yes. I know that this girl was hit by a cement trunk. Yes. We saw on the news... You the saw the story. story. Yeah, we saw it. And it was... I don't know what's worse, like riding in traffic or riding in Central Park with all the people and the dogs and... It's all bad. So I like just stationary stay- bikes in the gym. <laughs> you like Peloton. <laughs> Sorry, not to get off topic. You had mentioned something about duct syndrome and wanting yeah, to kind of talk I, about that. And so it was like I, one of the big takeaways from the book that we yeah. thought was interesting. So I had never heard of duct syndrome. Oh, you haven't? I hadn't. And so I'd love for you to talk about that concept because I think it's something that is being talked about a lot. So the duck syndrome is a term that I learned when Mallory was at Stanford because they say that many Stanford students are afflicted with the duck syndrome and the reason it got its name is because the duck lies along the water and you think that the duck is has no problems in the world but underneath the water he or she is frantically pedaling 
in order to enable that effortless looking float. And they say Stanford students appear as if they have no stress, no problems, and they can deal with all of the high stakes academic challenges and professional challenges that they're working towards when in fact many of them are furiously paddling under the surface, which of course creates all kinds of mental health issues and stress. And so it's something that they talk about and they have a name for it. So, you know, when I looked at the cover of the book and I saw Mallory, she she's tall, she had an athletic build, and she looks on the surface like the duck to be extraordinarily oh, yeah. healthy, right? Totally. And, you know, I think one of the questions that everybody has, whether it's illness that you're dealing with or other kinds of stress or pressures is how much do you let other people know what you're going through. And I feel like there were two different circumstances that she came across and she had different ways of dealing with it. One was going to the the prom or the parties when she just wanted to be a normal kid like everybody mm-hmm. else and didn't want to think about illness. And the other one was, I remember this so clearly, the argument with the professor about needing to be considered as somebody who was disabled and have her legal rights met. And so can you talk about those two different ways she addressed? Well, so first of all, one of the things that I think Mallory writes about that's so important is invisible illness. And Mallory If you look at that photo on the cover, it was shot one year and three months before she passed away. She looked completely fine, and she was very, very sick at that point. And because invisible illness masks a lot of what the person is dealing with, sometimes when a patient needs special accommodations, the person who is in a position to offer or withhold them errs on the side of withholding because they think the person doesn't quote unquote look sick. And that happened with Mallory all the time. So the anecdote you're talking about when she wrote to the Office of Accessible Education at Stanford to get help with Spanish because they wanted to not pass her or have her taken incomplete because she missed so much class time, Mallory advocated strongly for herself because she wanted to continue taking a foreign language and she knew that if she took an incomplete, it would create more pressure for her over the summer and into the next quarter. But she also felt that it was a discriminatory policy because she had done everything that she needed to do. And she did have special needs waived, you know, because of her special needs, she had things waived. And she ultimately did prevail, but it wasn't without a lot of aggravation and fighting and distress and crying until they finally figured out that they needed to accommodate, they needed to actually revisit their policy is what it was. And she advocated very strongly for herself. And I think that's why it turned out okay. And she talks about the way Mark, her father, helps her develop that voice. And he's trained as a lawyer. Yeah. Is that his yeah. background? He always said, don't go for emotion, go for logic. Mm-hmm. Make sure you make your case. And there's the other episode where Mallory is fighting to be in the clinical trial. And she argued vehemently in favor of staying in the trial and wrote a beautifully persuasive letter, but they ultimately still said no. And we ended up leaving and she was able to get the drug at another center that did allow her to take it. But that particular documentation of though the, of her feelings about trying to be in the clinical trial were a part of why I wanted to publish the book, because I thought there are going to be other people who need to get into clinical trials or want to. And this is an example that people can follow. And in terms of, advocating for your needs. Speaking of advocating for your needs and taking your health care into your own hands, I mean, was that something that you 
learned or realized early on, like navigating the ways of healthcare, getting into clinical trials, getting certain medications that you needed for Mallory, and just generally managing healthcare? No, we did not start out. I call us the accidental experts because it really were skills that were honed over time. In the early stages when she wasn't that sick, it was really about following protocols. We didn't have to challenge anything or buck up against anything. There were very specific guidelines that you followed and then there would be exacerbations and they were called tune-ups, but they were very mild. It wasn't until things got much worse and we were running out of options and we came to see that some of the systemic problems were why she struggled that we got into sort of fight mode and became advocates and worked really hard. Did you have to work really hard to fight for what you needed for her? Or was it something that was, a, like you were saying, like protocols with healthcare and health insurance and all of those things? In the end, we had to fight really hard. We had to fight to get the transplant approved. We had to fight to get certain medications approved. We had to fight to get the kind of care that we wanted in the hospital. For example, one of the things I speak about is the lack of recognition on the part of so many different hospitals that sleep is an important part of your medical regimen. And I talk a lot about the role that I played as the door guard in blocking access to people early in the morning. So for example, if somebody would come by to empty your trash can at five in the morning, or somebody would come by at 630 to draw labs, but they'd already drawn them and just had been neglected to be entered into the system. Or maybe there was a medical student that was pounding on the door because they wanted to get some vitals done and get some notes done up before the attending came around. And all of those things over time, I ended up having to become sort of the fighter and Mallory as well. She did a lot of the writing and that, and she did a lot of the speaking that enabled me to recognize what I needed to do to help her. So It wasn't always that I just had strong opinions about what needed to be done. She would have those strong opinions, and I would just act as her advocate. I was the bad cop to her good cop. She was always the good cop. I'm sure that was challenging. You do need good doctors. You need to really have good health care and to advocate for yourself, too. Where's your family? My family is upstate New York. I grew up in Syracuse, um, which is... Cold. Cold. Yes. Very cold. You... You have to love basketball and football because that's like the only thing. That's the religion in that's so Syracuse. Funny. Do you love it? I, do I love basketball and basketball football? Basketball and football. I love it as a way of connecting with my family. So whenever so we go all home, it? they're all into it. My parents have seasons tickets. It's the one thing that no matter what, it's um, consistent. In fact, my father has had a stroke a few years ago, and I went home to take care of him and. My mom and I literally went to a basketball game while my dad was in the hospital. And we did it because it was the one thing we could control. It was a way of escaping. And it just felt so normal. And it was therapeutic. That's interesting. It would not be for me. I mean, I was always that type of person that wanted to be doing something rather than watching something. Yeah. yeah. So I never watched any sports. You, Nobody in my family did. When Mallory was going through CF, when she was doing treatments, obviously you were probably there with her. But were you also turning to athletics to get you through or were you too? I mean, I always exercised every day, but yeah. I had, I morphed my, like when she was sick and home on IVs, when she was in the hospital, I would walk the hallways and I would try to get my 10,000 steps. Although back then we didn't call it the 10,000 steps. I would right. just try to make sure I logged my time to walk the hallways to, so I wasn't sitting all day long. And then when she was at home on AVs, I would, instead of going to the gym or going on her, I would go around the block and I did a check in my car and I, you know, X amount of miles in an hour. And I just made sure that I did my hour every day. That hour, like now it's 10,000 steps, but before yeah. it was the hour, 
walk an hour every day because that was what my dad raised me to believe. And now I was just reading in the Harvard Health Letter about how walking is one of the best things you can do. And I gave all the reasons. So I'm a walker, not a runner. All my friends who've run, when they get to my age, they have back surgery. So I'm not a pro, I'm not an advocate for running as you get older. I think it's fine when you're young, but I think it's hard on the body. Yeah, I think that's why triathlon is good because you do swimming, yep. cycling, and running. Yep. So you're never just running and strength training. And I, running is a very different thing in triathlon. It is yeah. when you're only running. Most of the kids in high school tended to play one sport, like either be the star volleyball or the star water polo or the star whatever. And I think because Mallory was a three-sport athlete, and because she got sick and sometimes had to take a break, she did not knock wood. Well, I guess I don't have to knock wood. She's not here anymore. But she did not have to deal with repetitive use injuries. And all the girls that just did volleyball, their shoulders really would get bad after a while. I am on the lo- I'm playing the long game over here with my athleticism. So I won't be, I will be doing triathlon. <laughs> you will I, 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 will. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm going to, yeah. I can't do one sport. That's yeah. good. I think it's smart. So now you're, so speaking of, sports and no segue you are super busy i mean you're we're here today in this beautiful beautiful hotel the baccarat in new york city which if you didn't invite us here to have this conversation for the marnie on the move podcast then i would have never come here and it is just absolutely incredibly beautiful well my friend leslie works here at the hotel and i asked if we could use it for the interview because i wanted to see it as well and she said yes she does publicity for them, and I think it's so interesting to have a hotel based around a high-end glass company. You know, there's but the the glasses and the details are really quite magnificent. And you're in the heart of the design community, right across from the MoMA. It's so. interesting because, you know, my life with Mallory was she had 67 hospitalizations with each one ranging from weeks to months so I spent a lot of time in a hospital and my uniform is baggy sweatpants and a white t-shirt which I'm about to change into that was what (laughs) I was starting to do and so the elegance and the opulence here is quite a change but then again being on this extensive book tour my life is unrecognizable from what it was like when Mallory was alive because I used to say I never liked to leave my zip code unless we were going to Hawaii as a family because I didn't want to be away from her. And her challenges didn't do well with travel. Like we didn't go to Europe or we didn't, you know, go to the Grand Canyon. Right. She had said she had always wanted to. Yeah. There were so many things she wanted to do. How did you, is it because you live on the West Coast that you have a thing for Hawaii in general? Yeah. How does Hawaii start? Well, Hawaii started because... My dad grew up in Florida, and when we were little kids living in New York, he always took us to Daytona. And then when we moved to California, I grew up going with my parents to Hawaii. And then, of course, they wanted to take Micah when he was an infant. So we went with Micah. He's two years older than Mallory. And then when Mallory was born, we took Mallory. And what happened on that first trip was that her symptoms disappeared, and it was magical, and we didn't know why but we just made a point of going back. And every time we went back, her symptoms dissipated. But then over time, they developed the study where they found that kids in Australia who surfed with cystic fibrosis did better than kids anywhere else in the country. And now kids routinely inhale hypertonic saline, which is that high dose salt, which is what you find in the salt water. It's interesting that you say that about surfing because I have a friend with Parkinson's and she is doing long distance running. She can barely walk, but she's doing long distance running because they say the same thing. I have a friend with Parkinson's and she's, her husband has her doing the craziest. He's a doctor and he's, he like drops her off at the bottom of this hill and makes her run up and then meets her at the top. Yeah. It's so counterintuitive. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's so interesting. So this has all happened really fast. She passed, and then within 18 months, you wrote the book, which is Mallory's book. Well, let me tighten the timeline. Yes. Mallory wrote the book. She wrote the pages in her lifetime. When she passed away, I opened the journal for the first time the day of her memorial because I was looking for something that I could say about her in her words. And then I spent about four months reading it every day. It took me that long to get through the 2,500 pages. And then I spent two months pulling together a draft. Then I asked my sister, Meryl, to help. And she worked on a pass with me. And then I took it to an editor in New York City who's very high-end, who knows everything. Her name is Claire Wachtel. And I told her I'm going to self-publish this book because New York publishing cycles won't really work because I really want the book done quickly. And to get it in the hands of people who knew her and loved her while they were still thinking about her. And Claire said this book is too important to self-publish. So she took me to Richard Abadi, who was the agent, and they made the deal in 24, uh, 48 hours. That's incredible. House. It was incredible. That, I've never heard of that. And then I said, you have to do this on my timeline. Well, I had an amazing publisher. It's Penguin Random House is the house, and Cindy Spiegel was the publisher, and she did a magnificent job helping shepherd it through to publication. And now I work with this incredible team at Random House on making sure that the book gets out there because as I was explaining to you, it's hard to get traction for a book. You have to really talk a lot about it, either yourself or through press or through talks. And so I felt with the material that Mallory had left for me, the best way to get the word out was through a book tour. Because even though they're not very popular these days, people don't think they help you sell books. I feel like every person that knows about the book has loved it or who's read it has loved it. And those who are introduced to it get very excited by it. But it is converting people from not knowing to knowing. So I appreciate the opportunity to speak here with you today. Well, this has been really wonderful. And I, I actually, you know, I still believe in book tours. I mean, you do? They may, yeah, I mean, I think... Most meeting, people don't. I know, well... Well, they're expensive. I'm a dreamer. They're yeah. expensive. But I'm you know, dreamer. I don't know yeah. if I told you, but we're donating 100% of the profits of the book. So this is not a money-making venture. Right. And not only that, but I took a leave of absence from most of my work, except for I kept one amazing client. But for the most part, I'm not doing anything else other than that. And... So that's another problem. It's expensive and time-consuming and challenging to get around. But So where are you? Where are some of the next places that you're going to be where listeners could come meet you if they're interested? In- well, I'm speaking a lot. In, I'm speaking next is Boston, Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard. Then I go back to L.A. Then I'm doing a lot in Hawaii, in Maui, something on the Big Island, six talks in Maui or seven talks in Maui. Then I go to Portland and then Dallas and then Phoenix. So what month are you in Hawaii? I'm there two different times. I'm there doing a, an event, an open to the public event on August 7th at okay. the Mauna Kea on the Big Island. And then the week of August 25th, I'm doing seven events on Maui. And they're all on the website. They okay. list all the tours. What's your website? Saltinmysoulbook.com. And people can go there to find out about your upcoming appearances. They can buy the book there. Yep. And they can also see the press that's been written. And all the reviews have been unbelievable. Okay. The, LA Times, your, the okay. LA Times calls it a memoir unlike any other. That's my favorite line. I wanted to ask you about whether you knew this was coming. So had you you and Mallory had a very close relationship. And yet the diary was something that she had kept past. Well, I knew protected. that she'd been writing. I just didn't know what was in it. Did you know she was going to leave this? for you and did you know 
Well, I mean, I knew she had it, but I, until, until I read it, I didn't realize that there was so much material to work with. There are so many pages, hundreds of pages that are not in the book that could easily be in the book. She has a passage that's like three pages where she writes about her fears and her anxieties. And I retrospect, I wish I'd put it in, but now it's when I go talk, I, I use additional pages. And so I, it doesn't really matter that it's not in there because what's in there is great. And so the, this process was really fast. And then all of a sudden your life changed dramatically, dramatically, unrecognizable. And so what is this new life for you? I mean, many people would have trouble getting over the loss of a child, which is obviously, well, I always say, just as you couldn't tell from Mallory's smile and all of her pictures, that she was suffering so much internally. And I would say just because I'm out on book tour, talking about Mallory and seemingly fine does not mean that I am. And I think it's a lesson that is worth repeating in any context, because I don't think you can ever judge a book by its cover. But I think that speaking about Mallory and sharing her words is the only place I really want to be right now. Well, I want to thank you because uh, thank you and Mallory. I, when I wrote to you and told you how much this so book meant to me, <laughs> I've never written to anybody before. Really? Yeah, I, I've never written to anybody. I've always written in my mind, like, you know, I have like many letters I've written to Malcolm Gladwell or to, uh, you know, other people that I've like read their books and really connected with. But when I read it, she loved reading. Absolutely loved reading. And I knew that she had connected with authors before. And I just felt like I needed to tell you that she did it. Well, look at this. Right? You <laughs> you reached out to me. And now we're doing the podcast. Now we're in touch. And it's so amazing because the one way that I internally in my mind, and I don't really articulate this out loud, but I will. I know so many people and I have the most amazing husband and son and parents until very recently and friends and community. And my book tour is an example because if you look at the places I'm speaking, all of the first, you know, 45 are all connected to somebody who knew and loved Mallory or me. And so I have this amazing thing. And yet when one person now, in my case, I lost my mom, my dad and Mallory together. So it was really three people, but I really my dad lived to be 93 and my mom was 88 and they had beautiful lives. So I don't mourn their death. I just miss them. Whereas with Mallory, it's the tragic loss. But I say to myself, I have this amazing life and there are so many people in it. I'm so lucky. And yet the world is darker. It just is the only way to describe it. And I'm in a grief group with three other moms. It's not formal. We don't have a facilitator. It's just us. Three other moms in my neighborhood who lost children right around the time I did. And we all feel the same way. And all the deaths were very different. But we all feel that way. It's like the loss of one person, particularly a child, that just darkens everything. So no matter how much joy you feel, it's always tempered by that. But the one thing that brings me peace of mind is speaking about Mallory and sharing her book and hearing from people like you who say it's life-changing or inspiring or the best book they've ever read. I mean, the comments are phenomenal and not just from the press. So that keeps me going. I had a wing mom. I have a wing mom. And that role is so important. And you made Mallory, right? A lot of who she was, was you. And, you know, that's, 
you've lived you live on i want to meet your mom i i I like wing moms (laughs) yeah wing moms are pretty awesome i have to say that my mom is awesome too because if she's listening to this she'll kill me yeah (laughs) your mom is awesome (laughs) she's awesome and i think what's interesting about the book and about speaking to people is that it hits people on different levels i've done my formal talk 62 times and there's always, almost always, not every time, but almost always a Q&A after. And it's really interesting to see how people ask, what questions people ask, yeah. what they respond to, what they're interested in hearing more about. And then when they come up after, when the talk is over and people come up to me just to talk one-on-one, what they bring up. It's usually something they didn't want to raise their hand and ask in front of a group. So it's been interesting. What is some of like the most interesting, what is like one of the most interesting questions that you've gotten? There's a couple of themes that come up. A lot of people, shockingly, a lot of people ask me, now that you've done so many talks and you have this platform and you see that people are moved by your talk, what what are you going to do to take Mallory's messages and not just throw them out into the universe and let them drop? How are <laughs> you going to affect change now that you've made everybody listen to you? I mean, I, I find that question interesting. It's not always worded that way, but it comes up all the time. People ask me, they basically say you have a responsibility. We've bought your daughter's book. We've come to hear you talk. You've raised these really important issues. Now what? That, that's the question that really is interesting. A lot of people asked me what the biggest surprise in the journal was. So I actually now add that into my talk where I volunteer and I don't wait for people to ask me. I say the big surprise is that her facade of perfection masked the darker truth about what she was really thinking and feeling. It's all about passing, passing on the love, right? Um, yes. So yeah, I've read the book. Marnie has now listened to the book. Ella's going to read the book. Yes. Yeah, I'm the sure book that a lot of people, people. Are gonna, yeah. I'm sure that a lot of my listeners that are going to go out and buy the book. So they can buy it on your website. They can. They can buy it on Amazon. We're, we're donating 100% of the profits. I'm not trying to make any money from this. I'm trying to raise awareness. I want people to read the book. I believe because of the feedback I've gotten that it's an important book. And I believe that people are changed after reading it and it does affect people. So I have a goal to keep talking until people don't want to hear it anymore. And then, you know, when I've run out of people to talk to, but like the crazy thing about the world we live in is I could talk every single day for the rest of my life and never run out of people to talk to. Right. And people love that. I think that people like to meet the author or, you know, learn more about the topic and hear about adversity and and get inspired. Well, that's the thing. I think Mallory's writing is inspiring, but people who've read the book are much more interested in meeting me and talking about it. Yeah. I mean, I think initially people are like unfinished life, salt in my soul. Like, what is this? For example, the young man who was the tech guy today when he was setting me up for my talk at this law firm, I have the trailer that I show, which is on the website too, that one minute trailer, which is really, I think, compelling because you get to meet Mallory. And then I had, so we had two big screens and one was the trailer and one was the talk. And he didn't realize that Mallory wasn't here. And then he said something about, so when did your daughter write the book? And I said, well, you know, she wrote it. And then when she passed away, he was like, she passed away. Oh my God. I was like, didn't you notice that from an unfinished life? But it didn't, it didn't connect him. And he was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And then he was intrigued and asked me a lot of questions. And I said, does this make you want to read the book? And he said, yeah, yeah, I do want to read the book. But you know, he didn't pick up a book when he left. Anyway, he heard the talk and after he came up and he said, I'm going to read the book. This is unbelievable. Yeah, Yeah. that's amazing. It's life changing for sure. And I think a lot of times when people are grieving, you don't really know what to say. Right. That's exactly a good point. That's a very good point. She and you have made it so approachable. And Um, I am still grieving. I'm grieving every single day. So when I walked in and I was like, is that your daughter? And she said, it's your daughter. I just get that pang of like, wow, how lucky you are to have an 11 year old. But what I've chosen to do is to get very involved in my daughter's friends lives we just came from a wedding in jackson hole wyoming of one of mallory's best friends 
and there's a picture of me that they just sent me and I'm it was after the ceremony and I have to show you this picture she's coming out and I'm like this and it's the biggest smile I have had since Mallory passed away and it's because it's one of her best friends who got married and I was so anxious about going to the wedding because I didn't want to cry and I didn't want to be all dramatic about the whole thing but you know I want to live in the world I don't want to be hold up grieving I want to share Mallory's story keep her alive make sure people don't forget about her this has been awesome I mean really 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 thank you so much thanks again for tuning into Marnie on the Move if you like what you hear leave us a five star review in Apple Podcasts follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com, for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, MarnieOnTheMove1 at gmail.com, and let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out. 